Hello. We want to thank you for joining our Living Messiah family by downloading this podcast. We hope it blesses you and enriches your life. We also want to encourage you, uh, if you can, and if your heart is so moved, to support this ministry by going on our website, livingmessiah.com, and donating to help us to put these podcasts in every nation, every place, so we can bring these messages to change lives, to help people grow in the Word of God. Once again, thank you so much for being part of our family. Shalom. We're all here tonight to listen to some amazing research, study, information, all of those things. And we're very blessed. And I'm going to let you explain your background because it is lengthy and it is extensive and it's worthy to be noted. So without further ado, because I know uh, we've, we're, it's 10 after, we want to turn it over at that time. So would you all welcome Dr. Miles Jones? It is a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you. I want to, I want to, I want to thank Mark Webb, an incredible pastor, for inviting me to share with the congregation. There really isn't anything I enjoy more than to get to come out and talk to people about the incredible work we're doing at the B'nai Imanah Institute. It is, we're a nonprofit, a 501c3 nonprofit educational and religious organization dedicated to restoring the Messianic Apostolic Church of the first century through research and education. And uh, I just want to give a hearty thanks to our translation team. We have people from all over the country, all over the world, that are working very hard, uh, upwards of 50 researchers, transcribers, translators. And the, 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 the thing is, since I, since I uncovered the first, recovered the first Hebrew Gospels, I predicted that when people learned that these were, came from an original source were not merely translations, at least many of them, they would start blossoming like flowers in the spring because the libraries of the world and the museums of the world would pull these things out of the sub-basement and say, well, this, this might be something worth looking at. So we have now uncovered more than 80 manuscripts of the Hebrew Gospels. Now, we're, we, haven't, we have obtained about 75% of those, and we have not authenticated all of them, but that's job one. Is it simply a translation, or does it come from a first-century source? So we are, and it's our wonderful team of translators. I couldn't do this. I couldn't do this. It's our translation team that has done this. That's why I'm here today, because of them. And we do need your support, and we do need your help. So pray about it. If you feel like God is calling you, you get to look at the Hebrew Gospels and work on them and help translate them. So pray about it, and if you feel God is calling you, get in touch with us. We'll train you. Okay? I mean, it helps if you, have, if you know the Hebrew alphabet or something. We'll train you. I want to tell you a story today. Okay? And it's where, how we got where we are right now. <clears throat> After a wild and woolly youth, where I definitely separated myself by a huge distance from the church, I finally came back to my Savior, Yeshua HaMashiach, and turned my life over to him, and I began reading the Bible again. 
Now, I had already gotten three degrees in languages and linguistics due to an early interest, really, in the, the whole concept of the alphabet. You know, there's only been one. Did you know that? There's been pictographic writing, hieroglyphs, cuneiform, etc. But as far as the alphabet is concerned, there's only been one. It was an idea so important that when its time came, it was copied and, and uh, differentiated by all the nations in the world that it came into contact with. So they took it up and they adapted it. They adopted it and adapted it to their own language. I've been fascinated with that since I, I was a young college student in my 20s. So I knew when I was saved and started reading the Bible again, I got to Exodus 32:16, where it says, Moses came down with the tablets that, that Jehovah had given him, and the word was the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God. I asked the question a linguist would ask. What is this writing of God that God seems to make equal even to his word? There's the message and the medium of the message. What is this writing of God? Well, I knew from my decades of study that there's only one alphabet, and guess where it showed up? It appeared first in the path of the Exodus at the time of the Exodus. So my question was, could this writing be the original alphabet of letters, not of pictographs, of letter symbols that's considered the greatest innovation in the history of humankind? And so I prayed about this, and Yehovah said to me, yes, you're right. It is the original alphabet of letters, and you are going to find the evidence of the Exodus and carry that message. So like a good soldier, I said, yes, sir. Not really. I whined. <laughs> I said, well, who, me? You're kidding. Now you, can, I have no idea how one could even begin, if there could possibly be any evidence left. And what enormous amounts of money it would take to mount an exposition to go to the Mideast, and what enormous luck it would take to even find anything. And you know I don't have two dimes to rub together, right? However, with these qualifications, I did say, but if you'll open the doors that I can't, I will charge through them. Well, within a few weeks, I did start the work within a few weeks, I picked up a book, I was led to a book about the evidence at the real Mount Sinai in Arabia. That's where it says it is in the Bible, by the way. This stuff about being in Egypt in the Sinai Peninsula, okay, that's Egypt. It actually says 72 times in the Bible that they went out of Egypt. Probably just a typo, right? You know, so, and they, it says they were, it is in, in, in Midian, in Arabia, Sinai, the wilderness of Sinai, Mount Sinai, it's right there. Problem is, you'd have to cross the Red Sea, and they didn't have any boats. So that would be, that couldn't be it, right? They'd have to have boats cross the Red Sea, right? Okay, so I, I uh, took this, this information, it had all this archaeological data in there, it was very convicting. Very convicting. So I, I called the author. I got a hold of the people that brought this evidence out of the Mideast. You may know, some of you may know them, Jim and Penny Caldwell. Some of you have 
heard them, nod your head yes, shake your head no. And they were great, you know. And I told them what I was doing. I was studying the original alphabet, whether it could be the writing of God mentioned in Exodus 32, 16. You don't have to write that down. You can buy the book later. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I called them up and they said, and told them I was looking, this is what I was looking at. And they said, how interesting that you should call. We have photographs of inscriptions from the base of Mount Sinai in Midian in Arabia. Could you translate them for us? And they sent them to me overnight. Okay, remember all the whining? Oh, I don't have any money. How are we going to do this? They were overnighted to me. I didn't have to even pay the postage. All right, so the next time he tapped me on the shoulder, I did say, yes, sir. I'll do it. I learned. You'd be proud of me. Uh, you know. Okay, so... I took this information, and I did translate them, and they spoke of events straight out of the pages of Exodus. I mean, it's amazing. Truly, truly amazing. It took me a couple of years because I had learned a whole lot about the ancient scripts. You know, I am a linguist, historical linguist, so I, you know, I had a, a lot of skills going into it, a lot to learn. But I did translate them. I did find my way to the oldest script, and indeed... The inscriptions at the base of Mount Sinai are the oldest alphabetic letter symbols known to linguistic science. And they tell a story that comes straight out of the pages of Exodus. So I wrote that up in a book called The Writing of God. And that was a fantastic experience. Okay, so far so good. Right? So I, a couple of years later, I was moved again to start studying. I'd done an incredible, I mean, I, I spent 10 years studying the Old Testament and all the history surrounding it. Found, I found an overwhelming amount of evidence of the Exodus. And the experts will tell you there is no evidence of the Exodus, and there's a reason for that, because they don't want the Exodus to be real. These are, all, these are all secularized, you know, people in the academic world who don't want the Bible to be real. Most of them, I'm not going to, Blacken everybody with that, that brush. But most of them don't want the Bible to be real. They'd rather contort history than to actually find something valid about the Bible. Well, I did. I found that the chronology of the Bible was correct and true based on scientific evidence. And so that's what I wrote up in the writing of God. Right? So then I turned my attention to the New Testament. And lo and behold, it was true what I had heard. That the earliest gospel was written by Matthew in Hebrew. All the early church fathers said so. All of them said so. And nobody said it wasn't. So you got, you know, like 24 to 1, a score of 24 to 1, you know, for nobody against, all right? And they should know, right? Okay, so it turns out that so there are 75 attestations to the Hebrew Gospels in the ancient patristic liter, the literature, the literature of the fathers of what we now call Christianity, right? And among those 85, 75 attestations, they quote the Hebrew Gospels about 80 times, quotes directly from the Hebrew Gospels, quotes that we can find in the Hebrew Gospels that we have today. Right, that are not in the Greek. And you're going to see all that evidence today if I ever quit rambling. All right? All right, so, 
so this is, this is what led me into doing this. So I started doing it, and I knew for a fact that no Hebrew Gospels existed because all the experts had said so. No Hebrew Gospels exist. If they ever existed, which they doubted, so that's modern, modern academics for you. The Hebrew Gospels never existed. So that means all the early church fathers were either frauds or fools, right? Because they all thought they did exist. But it didn't make all that much difference because they have definitely all been destroyed by now due to the competition between the churches. Keep in mind, the Hebrew Gospels are the most forbidden book in the history of humankind. Why? Because they bring down both the Jewish church and the Gentile church, right? who all want to claim primacy of the Bible. You may have heard this, that every book in the New Testament was originally written in Greek, despite the fact that every single one of them was written by a Hebrew. Does that even pass the smell test? About half of them were originally written in Greek, as we can tell. But a brief rundown, Matthew was definitely written in Greek, and Luke was originally written in Greek. How do we know that? Because of those quotations that they cited from the Hebrew Gospels in the early literature, they're in Luke, not Matthew. But they're published anonymously, so just said the Hebrew Gospels, right? It's a gospel according to the Hebrews. But when Luke was translated into Greek, it was kind of doubled in size. They added a lot more information. And I'm not saying it's not the sacred word of God. It certainly is. They should know back then at the time. But it's a kind of a hybrid. Originally in Hebrew, then expanded when it was turned into Greek. And they added some things, and I'll show you an example or two of that, all right, that were added in there by the Greek editors later on. As far as we know, Mark and John were written in Greek. As far as we know, Luke, Luke was written in Hebrew. Acts probably should have been too, but we haven't, we haven't really ascertained that yet. I've got 80 manuscripts. You try reading 10,000 pages over the weekend, right? Okay, so, so we're, we're getting to them. We're getting to them one at a time. By the way, we need support, and we actually need more workers. So if anybody does feel called, get in touch with us. We'll train you. Okay? We need more, we need more teams than we have now. All right, otherwise, you'll be waiting three lifetimes to get the compilation of the Hebrew Gospels. I'm not kidding. I mean, we can't ignore all the other books. It's not one book. It's 80-plus manuscripts. Six entire compilations of the Brit, not just the Gospels, but the Brit Hadashah in Hebrew. Remember, this was a messianic affair, the early church. The church of Yeshua HaMashiach, of Jesus Christ. It was an entirely messianic affair. They were Jewish Christians. And they were the center of what we now call Christianity for at least seven centuries before the Greeks totally wiped them out and took over. But they survived. As I was looking for the Hebrew Gospels, I soon came to realize I knew they existed. I have them. I had like three different manuscripts by then. So I knew they had survived. How had they survived? Well, I quickly discovered that the Messianic Church, which was declared, this is the church of Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, the original church. When they formed the Greco-Roman Church in the 4th century, Constantine did this. They were declared heretics. The original church of Jesus Christ was declared, was declared heretic. Why would they do that? That's their competition. It's all about competition. But then they proceeded to hunt them to extinction and burn their scriptures. 
And they did that to the Greeks too. The churches were all fighting each other. We all know enough about history to know this stuff, don't we? The church, churches were drawing blood against each other for dominance. Did Yeshua teach them this? No, he didn't, did he? But he's a heretic, right? They declared his church heretic, and they had created a new church, a Greek church with Greek rules and Greek scripture, a Greek God, a Greek Jesus, Greek scripture, Greek doctrine. And they changed whatever they needed to change to do that. And we can trace it. If, if a certain verse is not present in the manuscripts before the 4th century, it was added in the 4th century, right? So that's what I do. I research all that. I kind of hunker down and don't get out much, you know, for years at a time. <laughs> so that's what our institute does. And we have people all over the world working on it. And we're so glad, I'm so glad I get out of the study to come out and talk to you today. So I want to talk about the Hebrew Gospels with you right now, shall we? Here's the key thing to understand, is that the other churches, it was all about competition. And remember, they literally did, and this is, a proven historical fact, and please don't believe me, go look it up. But remember, it barely, met, it barely merits a footnote in the history of the church. I mean, who wants, who wants to come out and say, yeah, well, we did declare the church, the original church of Jesus Christ to be heretic in the fourth century. Who wants to say that from the pulpit? Right? So it, it's really just maybe barely touched on, but it is absolutely a, a historical fact. So it's about competition. Now, this, there's no other way to put this. This is apostasy. This is the great apostasy. And it has lived on because of that apostasy. Sin not repented repeats. It comes back over and over again. Yes, do we know this? I mean, uh, we know it, right? And, and there's no corporate exception for sin. I want you to know that. If a church has committed sin, they have to repent. And they will repent. As soon as their members, one by one, get it and start repenting, because it's called generational sin. They profited from the blood of the, of the messianic heretics. They profited by that blood. They took their possessions. They blackened their reputation. They changed their doctrine to suit them, the doctrine of the church to suit them. We know this. I studied the omissions and additions to Scripture. And uh, so that sin perpetuates. Oh, do we not know about the pogroms and the inquisitions and the crusades and the blood spilt and the religious wars at the, during the time of the Reformation when, when people tried to break loose from the Greco-Roman or the Roman church now? These things all happened, and they were caused by that original apostasy which said, basically, God gives us permission to destroy people who don't agree with our doctrine because... The word is inerrant, meaning our Bible is inerrant. You are aware there are different versions of the Bible, yes? Okay, so when they say the word is inerrant, they mean our word is inerrant. Okay, now I'm not trying to tell anyone the word, say, word of God is not sacred. It is. It is the sacred word of God. And we need to restore it to its original condition but it has been tampered with, and any Bible scholar will tell you this. There are things that have been added and omitted. 
right? And then when you look at the Hebrew, you see very, very poignant examples of this. It does not change the gospel story. Don't anybody panic. It does not change the gospel story. Yeshua is still the Son of God, and he's still our Savior. But what it does is that everything we know about our Messiah comes to us through the Greek filter of a different language, culture, and thought. And then I'll show you how intense that can be. When Yeshua came back from the grave, he met his followers on the road, right? And, and he said to them, God is your salvation. Because that's the way the Hebrew believers talked to each other. They were required to use the name of God. This is God is your salvation. Yehovah is your salvation. Or Yehovah is our, our salvation was a variant of it. Yehovah Yoshiahenu. God is our salvation. Well, you have noticed that the name of God has been erased from the New Testament. Not in there anywhere. And now it's been erased from the Old Testament too. You're all likely to have a copy that erases Yehovah from the Old Testament as well. Right? Okay, why is that? Well, it's kind of obvious, right? They don't want a Hebrew hierarchy. They don't want to bow down to Hebrew priests. They want a Greek hierarchy. They're creating a Greek church. So they want to divorce themselves from the, from the Hebraic church, and they did exactly that. They declared them heretics. Kicked the Jews and the in-laws, the Messianics, out into the cold. So this is the reason that we have so many contortions in the Bible. And they... And they change things as appropriate, and this is what every seminarian gets hammered into them. Even many of our Hebraic roots thought leaders, our seminarians that came from the seminary, they believe they have been programmed in Greek primacy, the Bible, so much they won't even look at the Hebrew Gospels or look at the evidence of it. So this is, this is the, the things we're looking at. So I'm going to ask... my good friend Rick here, if he would pass this around. Now, this is a working copy. I know it's not fancy, but I would like for you to look at anyone who wants to, to look at it, open it up, look at the translation notes. So you can say, honestly say to people, I know the Hebrew Gospels exist. I've held it in my hands, and I've looked at it, and I've looked at the translator's notes in there. Now, Rick is going to make sure nobody walks off with my editor's copy. He is a master of martial arts, so... <laughs> So don't mess with him, all right? So we will have much nicer copies for you, but I want to see, we also would love to, to send any of you our re free research newsletter that keeps you updated on what we're doing and what we're putting out in the publication, where I'm going to be next weekend speaking, right? So you, can, so you can keep track of what's going on. But that's free, and we'd love to have you do it. Okay, so we're talking about... <clears throat> The authority of the church was vested in the language of Scripture, right? So that's where Greek primacy comes from. The Greeks declared that the earliest, most authentic versions of the, of the Gospels were in Greek by divine providence, because we know the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, right? Some parts of it in Aramaic, but most of it in Hebrew. Well, by divine providence, God gave us the Greek Old Testament and that is far superior to anything in Hebrew. Yes, that's Greek primacy of the Bible. 
by divine providence, the Greek, the Greek versions are the most authentic and authoritarian. You with me on this? Nod your head yes. You understand that. Greek church wants you to believe that the Greek gospels and the Greek Bible are superior. All right. Now, the Latin church, the Roman church, did the same thing with Latin. The most authentic versions of the Bible are in Latin. And what, what is the outcome of this, right? The outcome is that if the Greek version is the most authentic, then God's capital on this earth is in Constantinople, where Constantine established the Greek church, right? which later split from the Roman part of the empire. Or if the most authentic versions of it are in Latin, that's Latin primacy of the Bible, then God's capital on this earth is in Rome, right? However, if the most authentic manuscripts of the Bible are in Hebrew, where is God's capital on this earth? Anybody? Let me hear it. How about loud? Absolutely, okay. So that's, it's a competition. It's a fight for primacy. Who's going to rule the Christian religion all over the world? And the churches were fighting to the death over this. There were incredibly saintly leaders of every church I know of. There were some really incredibly saintly leaders. But then there were others that were far more interested in power than salvation. I mean, this is kind of basic human nature 101, isn't it? I mean, does anybody doubt that? Good, because without that perspective, you really can't understand what I'm going to say tonight. You know, And so I'm, I'm so glad that Yeshua answers to the name Jesus Christ. Many millions of people have been saved by that. And I, I'm so glad of that. But I do not think that means he doesn't want you to know his real name and get closer to him and really know him intimately. And that's why the Hebrew Gospels are so important, all right? Because everything we know about our Hebrew Messiah comes to us through the Greek filter of a different language, culture, and thought, right? So that Greek filter, in other words, we're getting a Greek version of the Messiah. So there's, and it is the same historical person. However... We have a Hebrew Messiah who upholds Torah. Not a yad or a tittle will pass from the word and, until all comes to pass, right? And then we have a, a Greek Jesus who is said to have fulfilled Torah, so it is abolished now. It's dead legalism nailed to the cross with Jesus, right? You, you, I don't need to explain these are diametrically opposed viewpoints, do I? So the architect of these two people who are really one historical person are quite different, aren't they? They are quite different. And so I was telling you, when, when Yeshua came back in the Hebrew Gospels, he greeted his followers with the name of God. God is our salvation. May God be your salvation. All right? Yehovah Yoshiah God is our salvation. Well, guess what? When they're busy erasing the name of God from the New Testament, they changed that. And now he says, all hail. Right? Some say good day, but most say all hail. In the Greek, you look it up. It's in the last page of Matthew, last chapter of Matthew. Right? Well, all hail is a Roman military salute. Slam your hand on your breastplate and thrust it into the air. All hail. Does that look familiar? 
That's because Hitler, Adolf Hitler, was a big fan of Mussolini, and he adopted the Roman military salute as the Nazi salute. So I want to ask you a very important question. Isn't it nice that we have the Hebrew gospel so we know that Yeshua did not greet his followers on the road with the Nazi salute when he came back from the dead? Isn't it nice to know that? All right. Thank you. Can I hear an amen? <laughs> All right. So that's how far it can go, and that's just one example, but it is my favorite. So I wrote up the Hebrew Gospels in this book, The Sons of Zion versus the Sons of Greece, because that's the whole battle there since the beginning of time, since Genesis, the Sons of Zion versus the Sons of Greece. And I found that there was so much documentation, because I want to remind you that the Hebrew Gospels are the most forbidden book in the history of humankind. You want to find books on witchcraft and magic? There are shelves of them. Whole sections of the Vatican devoted to that. Right? You're not going to have any problem finding them in any any religious university library, you'll find plenty of them, all right? But if you want to find the Hebrew Gospels, you're lucky if they didn't burn them, right? Because it rocks the boat. Because it challenges Greek primacy of the Bible. It was forbidden not only to Gentile Christians, but to the Jewish church it was forbidden. Because they blamed the Hebrew Gospels and the Messiah for all the oppression the Christians had been laying on them. So it was forbidden to them as well. Okay, so you've got the Christians against you, you've got the Jews against you. Who's left? Who preserved these Hebrew Gospels? The Messianic Church did. They were declared heretic in the 4th century, and then they just disappeared like good little boys and girls. They went away, and they quit. Does that sound like Yeshua's followers to you? They did not walk away. They did not quit. They endured oppression throughout the centuries. Right? They established an Italic sea. Sea is a seat of church government in the north of Italy in opposition to the Roman sea in the south, the Roman seat of church government in the south. So you had these two opposing churches. And you've never heard of this. I bet nobody here has ever heard of this. Because who controls the narrative of history? Generally, the church does, the strongest church. And they wipe out everything else and they burn it. Right? So this Messianic church survived over the centuries, went under many names because they wanted to just explain it away as a cloud of heretical pests. Right? And it spread and they evangelized all through all through the Middle East, and all through the, the entire known world, Europe, all the way to China. I mean, really, it's an incredible story. And there was so much documentation on it, because remember, it's forbidden to both the Gentile Christians and the Jews. So who's keeping this information? Nobody is writing it. Nobody's including it in the histories of the church, because they all have an agenda. So I found it's like being in Alibaba's cave with all this treasure of information on the survival of the Messianic Church, I could not put it all in one book. So this goes to Constantine, the 4th century, and this tells the rest of the story up to the present time. 
major, and there were many incredible major accomplishments of the Messianic Church throughout the centuries. In fact, I happen to be doing a presentation on it tomorrow at Son of David. So you can get that information from Suzette Coggins here. Show, please show up, because it will be totally different from this one. I wrote that up in Messianic Church Arising. The Messianic Church survived through the ages till now, and you are part of that. Even though you don't know about your forebears, you are still a part of that Messianic Church. It was never destroyed, despite great efforts to do so. It survived. And that's why we're here today, isn't it? Okay, so Greek primacy of the Bible. Hebrew primacy was from the years about 30 to 70. This was totally messing at this time. Really, the first, I think the first Gentile was uh, Barnabas in about 20 years after the crucifixion. And then slowly, the Greek numbers of Greeks grew under Paul. They grew to thousands. All right, but the Jewish Christians were growing faster. So they were dominant in the first centuries. The Messianic church was. Before, like, the church of Rome even got on its feet. So for decades after Yeshua's ministry, all of his followers were Hebrews. The Gospels are a Hebrew story. I mean, really, folks, let's look logically. This whole book, everything in the New Testament was written when, when what we now call Christianity was an accepted sect of the Judaic church. They went to synagogue on Saturday, you know? And then sometimes they'd go to the, to the, the Christian church on Sunday as well, you know? But they were believers in the Messiah. But they never left the Tanakh behind. That was a, it would have been as ridiculous to them, uh, unacceptable to them, to quit studying the Tanakh as it would be to quit believing in the Messiah. And they stood the ground and they were oppressed for it. So for, for at least this period of the strongest part of Hebrew primacy for 40 years, the Bible was a Hebrew story, and the Gospels were a Hebrew story, and they're written in Hebrew, and they're preserved in Hebrew. And there's a lot to these things, but we'll, we'll get to them. Greek primacy went from about 70 A.D. at the fall of the temple in Jerusalem, and they, they all moved to Antioch. The Christian church basically moved in mass to Antioch, much of it. There were still Christians down in, in Israel. But this is when many of the, the, Greek, uh, the Greek manuscripts, the Greek translations of the Hebrew came in, and the letters of Paul, which were originally written in Hebrew, originally written in Greek, sorry, these started coming out, right? So at about that point, there began to be a lot of Gentile Christians. And eventually, but it took until the second century for them to outnumber, outnumber the Jewish Christians. But eventually, over time, there became many more Gentile Greek Christians than there were Messianic Christians. But they're still very strong. They're very strong for a very long time. But after the death of the apostles, really almost all of the church leaders were Gentiles now. Right? And uh, Latin primacy started about 400 B.C. This is when, uh, in 380... Pope Damasus commissioned St. Jerome to gather all the things together, all the manuscripts of the Bible, and commit them to, to Greek. Right? Now, this is interesting, okay? Because that had already been done. 
and you don't know about that either. You probably know about Jerome. And you've heard about the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, right? And you've heard about the Latin Vulgate, right? Which is what Jerome wrote, and that was, so in 325, they commissioned a new Greek translation. And then in 380, they commissioned a new Latin translation called the Vulgate. These were done by Jerome, who spoke of the Hebrew Gospels. They called it the authentic fountainhead of the word, and he translated into Latin and Greek. The Hebrew Gospels spoke of it often. All right. You follow me so far? These were not the first Bible. First Bible was the Italic Bible. The Italic Bible was written in Latin. It was the first compilation as we know it of the word. Old Testament, New Testament books. And remember, this is like 150 AD they're doing this. The ink was still wet on some of these manuscripts. I mean, they had the original things in the Italic, right? All right. And then later, about 290, Lucian of Antioch, who was a Messianic, converted the Bible into, created a Greek version of the entire Bible. Many people call this the received text of the Bible because it was received throughout the world. It was not yet a Roman world. There were many Greeks. It was received throughout the world as the authentic text of the Bible. Lucian of Antioch, a Messianic, converted that to Greek. Right? So now let's fast forward about hmm, 20, 30 years. And now the Pope is commissioning a Greek version of the Bible. Why do you need a Greek version of the Bible? You just have one, and it's been received by everybody in the world. Does anybody suspect they know why? You have a new version of the Bible, so you inculcate your doctrine in it by making whatever changes you feel you need to make to do that. Right? After all, we're talking about Latin, we're missing now. Right? So they, they created a new Bible in Greek. And then in 380, in Latin, we already had Bibles. And then they declared them to be the original Bibles, the most authentic Bibles in the world, in the history of the world. So you can see the competition thing going on between the Greek church and the Latin church, which had, which had split, uh, rapidly split. All right. So it was not the, the Latin primacy lasted in the West until 1600. They banned any scripture in Hebrew. And they even banned any scripture in Greek. Now, there were way too many manuscripts in Greek to get rid of them all, but they certainly tried, and they weren't teaching Greek anymore. So many of the major masterpieces that we know from the classical age of Greek, remember the Greeks created the foundation of the Western model of civilization and education in so many areas of science? Yes, you've heard of that. The Western model of education came from the Greeks based on the Hebrew. Right? They stole a lot of that from the Hebrew. But now Greek was persona non grata because it didn't match Latin primacy of the Bible. So they shut down the Greek. They shut down the Hebrew. Nobody was studying it, and manuscripts got, got lost. They wore out, or they were burned, or they were just lost, fell apart. Okay? So this is what happened to the Bible. So many masterpieces of the classical age of Greek and the budding science, they were lost. And we're talking about Aristotle, 
right? Plato, we're talking about Galen, you know, the, the first doctor of the, the science of medicine. These were valuable manuscripts. Now they're banned, right? Okay, but they didn't control all, you know, that the Constant, Constantinople was the center of the Greek church. So they're at war with each other. And the Latins finally win. But in any case, that's what you've got going on. It wasn't until the 1600s, 1456, they invented the printing press. By 1600, everybody had one, and they were printing Bibles in every language known to mankind because of the Reformation, because they just wanted to. The monopoly on Latin primacy of the Bible was broken in the West and anywhere. You could get the Bible in your own language. And when they got the Bible in their own language, two-thirds of Europe became Protestants within 30 years. The Reformers went to Geneva, and guess who they interacted? They interacted with the Waldensians, the Neo-Messianics from northern Italy, who had preserved the Bible outside of the grasp of the Roman Church. So they had the received text of the Word, right? And they had been oppressed, and they had been slaughtered, and they had, been, they, they had really been attacked. And they kept pushing them further and further back up into the Alps. They were called Waldensian, Valdenses, people of the valleys. And, but they, they never managed to, to destroy them. And now many of them are pushed all the way back up until they're in Switzerland. And now Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwigli, all of the reformers were going to Geneva. And it became a hothouse of recreation of the Bible from Messianic versions. Messianic versions became the Reform Reformation Bibles that were translated into the vernacular of Europe. We have those martyrs to thank for that, the Waldensians of northern Italy. Okay, you're getting me distracted, but at this point, the monopoly on the word had been broken and it changed. People could actually read the Bible for themselves now, which was forbidden. It had been forbidden to even read the Bible much less to have one, not even to have a Bible, much less to have it in your own vernacular language. But it, with the invention of the printing press, that all went away in the Reformation, and there followed the Thirty Years' War and the other religious wars, which took millions of lives until the Roman Church figured out they were not going to be able to force the Protestants back into the, you know, they were not going to be able to put the two toothpaste back in the tube. It wasn't going to happen. All right? So things changed. But we were talking about the Hebrew Gospels. Hebrew Matthew, a dozen early church fathers attribute the Hebrew Matthew to the Apostle Matthew. 75 different attestations, 80 quotations from the Hebrew Gospel in church writing. The early church, the Hebrew Gospel was the most highly esteemed manuscript in the early church. Why would that be? Because everybody at that time knew it had been the original gospel. Everybody knew that, right? They used it to, they, they used it to settle any disputes about what was the authentic wording of the Bible. They'd go back to the Hebrew, right? Jerome said that. You have to go back to the original fountain ahead of the word, you know, the Hebrew gospels. Papias was one of the first to talk about it. He's a second century guy. He said Matthew collected the oracles, that means the sayings of Jesus, like Proverbs. 
in the Hebrew language. We'll come back to him in a minute. Remember that he said the earliest person who spoke about it in writing said that Matthew was like Proverbs, a collection of the sayings of Yeshua. They were more than that. There was also narrative, but we'll, we'll come back to that. <clears throat> Origen said concerning the four Gospels, the first was written according to Matthew, who published it for those who from Judaism came to believe, composed as it was in the Hebrew language. You get in the drift here, Eusebius of Caesarea, referred to the as referred to as the father of church history, said Matthew had first preached the Hebrews and was on the point of going to others. He transmitted in a writing in his native language the gospel of Matthew, and thus supplied by writing the lack of his own presence to those from whom he was sent, which turned out to be pretty much the pattern of the other apostles who wrote. You know, when they were called out away, they left in writing their testimony. And some of them have survived. Eusebius, Epiphanius, Bishop of Salamis, the Ebionites used. The Ebionites were one of the first earliest uh, divisions in the Nazarene church. They're called Nazarenes. Uh, so the Nazarenes were followers of the man from Nazareth. The Ebionites were followers of John the Baptist originally. They also believed in the Messiah, but they became a different sect and they did different things and they had their own gospel. Gospel according to the Ebionites. Basically, they did not believe in the divine birth of the Messiah. So they took that part out. All right. Which was not, but the, the Nazarenes were very orthodox. They, they pretty much believed what the mainstream church believed. Epiphanius says that the Hebrew based text of Matthew could be found in the Jewish libraries in Tiberias, along with Hebrew translations of the Gospel of John, the book of Acts all of which were described in detail by Jews who had been converted to Christ by reading those documents there. All right, so what is this saying? There was an early compilation of the Hebrew gospel. And even when some things were in Greek, they were translated into Hebrew because the church was mainly Messianic. They were Hebrew-speaking Messianics. They didn't know Greek. Of course, now the spin will tell you, oh, everybody spoke Greek. No one spoke Hebrew anymore. Until, of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls came out, and it turns out everybody did still know Hebrew, and nobody knew Greek, which is true. They hated the Greeks. They did not know Greek. Only the rare few knew Greek. The entire populace did not. They spoke Hebrew, and they spoke Aramaic, but they did speak Hebrew. So they, they translated the Greek, the epistles that were in Greek, into Hebrew so they could have a complete compilation. They were... They were believers. They wanted their own compilation of, of the Gospels and the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament. Does that make sense? They didn't want to learn Greek in order to read the word of a Hebrew son of God, right? Why would they want that? So Epiphanius says the beginning of their Hebrew Gospel goes like this. In the days when Herod was king of Judea. Remember that. That's what they said the Hebrew gospel started with. Okay, with that line. That's from Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Not, not Matthew. Many of the other quotations were from Luke. So we know Luke, which was cited by them as the Hebrew gospel, was also originally written in Hebrew. Luke is missing the first four verses. So it starts with verse 5, which happens to say, when Herod 
was in the days when Herod was king of Judea. Remember what Epiphanius said? The beginning of their gospel has in the days when Herod was king of Judea. All right? And here we have it in the Hebrew gospel. And in every Hebrew gospel that I've examined, it does not have the first four pages. First four verses. Okay, remember I told you Luke was expanded. A lot more stuff was added to it by the Greeks, when that's translated in Greek. And this is one of the things that was added in. Was It's called the prologue. All right, well, what does the prologue say? Why would it be missing? Well, the first four verses of Luke say, for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth the narrative of those things purely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, that was the apostles, yes. They took it in hand, means they wrote it down, and it seems under perfectly, since I've had perfect understanding, I thought I would write a copy for you, Theophilus, my friend. That's what they say. They say that Greek Luke is a copy of manuscripts that came from the apostles that they wrote down and they provided to the author of Luke. So they're trying to authenticate their work as being really from the first, from the first apostle. You following that? It says it's a copy. That's what this says. You will never, ever hear that from the pulpit. But you have eyes to see, right? It says, the apostles wrote this down. They sent the delivered narratives to us. And since now I know everything, I'm going to write a copy of it to you. Right? And then verse, verse 5. That's what it said. To paraphrase. So, in the Hebrew Gospels, in all the manuscripts I know of, Vatican... Hebrew 5.30, it's in there. In the Hebrew Gospels from Cochin and other manuscripts, they're missing the first four. They're missing the first four lines. If they were, if they were, trans, if they were translations from the Greek, they would have the first four verses, wouldn't they? It's the Hebrew Gospel that doesn't have the first four, the first four verses. All right, so here's the, here's the preface to Luke by Jerome. This is what first tipped me off to these Gospels. They were, fit, they were a 15th century manuscript, but they had prefaces by St. Jerome, who originally translated the Hebrew Gospels into Greek and Latin. And at that time, he also wrote the prefaces to the Hebrew Gospels and the prefaces to the Greek and Latin Gospels. All right? In the preface, and this becomes one of the markers of the Hebrew Gospels, it says that the Gospel was originally written in Hebrew. Okay, that's Jerome speaking, who should know better than anyone, right? It was Jerome who said, well, there's so many versions out there. There's so, so many errors have accumulated. We need to go back to the authentic fountainhead of the word. The Hebrew gospel, the gospel according to the Hebrews. That's St. Jerome for you. That's what he said. Okay, so in the preface, it says that Luke was from Syria. He dwelt in Antioch. And he would, the gospel was already written for those in Judea who did not speak Greek. They, spent, they spoke Hebrew. So the gospels, the prefaces to the Hebrew gospels, almost 
all often make a direct statement that, that the Gospels were originally written in Hebrew, or Luke was originally, Matthew was originally written in Hebrew. Right? So the Hebrew Gospel of Matthew was the original Gospel. It was the only Gospel written by an apostle. We'll talk about John later. The only eyewitness account, Mark and Luke, did not know Yeshua in their lifetime. I'm not saying the word is not the sacred word of God. It is, in my view. It absolutely is. But they are second-hand accounts. You should always give more weight to a first-hand account. Basic logic here? You good? So it was the only eyewitness account. It was the only gospel originally written in Hebrew. Now, Luke was originally written in Hebrew, but it's a hybrid, remember? So it got rewritten in Greek and more was added to it. It's by far the earliest gospel and it's called by Jerome the authentic gospel. The fountainhead of the, of the word. That's pretty strong. That's what the early church fathers said about it. Hebrew gospel was widespread and widely known. All the early church fathers knew about it. It was reported as being used in Israel, Antioch, Yemeni, Spain. Turkey, Constantinople, and as far away as India. We have those manuscripts, by the way, the Gospels from India. We have them. Uh, so all of those places, that, think about it. The apostles went into all the known world. There were no Greek Gospels yet. So what Gospels were they talking about? They took the Hebrew Gospels with them, and they took the Tanakh with them. That was their word. Make some sense here? Is the light dawning in your mind? <laughs> Good. But you, don't, you just don't hear these things. So you hear a totally different story. And generally, we don't stop to think about it. You don't stop to think about the first four verses of Luke and what they actually say. The Hebrew gospel was endowed with unusual authority in early Christianity. So many church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, Regent Didymus, Jerome, all refer to the Hebrew gospel to assert a proper interpretation or correct a false one in the sacred literature. You go back to the source. You go back to the authentic, original source of the, of the Gospels. Yes? Don't blame me. They wrote it. These are the early church fathers. They said it. I didn't. I just wrote it down. There was still one. There were, we have many reports of there being the Hebrew Gospel still being extant in Spain in the 14th century where our, our Gospels from Catalonia come from. It's still being extant in Constantinople in the, in the 10th century, in the 14th century. Nicephorus describes it. So they were, they, were still, they were still out there and reported all through the ages eventually. So they did survive. Copies of them survived. Obviously copied generation to generation, region to region. M makes sense, like all other manuscripts. They, they got copied and recopied. Yes? Madrid, yes, I need to make sure you understand. So the first-hand gospel of math was the template for the second-hand gospels of Mark and Luke, heavily based on. Luke added a lot of new information. Mark is basically a summary of Matthew and Luke. Okay? John is a totally different book, so we're going to do it separately. Matthew was an apostle of Jesus. His first-hand gospel was excellent in Hebrew 10 years after the crucifixion. 75% of the contents of Mark and Luke are from Matthew, the original Hebrew gospel. These are the approximate dates when they came out. 
Matthew in 40 AD, the crucifixion was in 30, 31 AD. Uh, Luke, about 20 years later. Mark, another 10 years or so later. John in 90 to 100. Now, John has the least attestation to it, so that's really a guess. Now, this is called the acculturation principle. With time and distance, the church became more anti-Semitic. Why would they do that? Because the Hebrews were their competition. So they became demonized. They became the enemy. Aren't you grateful that we don't have any of this kind of thinking in modern political discourse? You know, each side listen to each other in a sane, rational manner, and they don't try to demonize their opponents. I'm so glad we're modern, and we're moderns, and we don't we don't resort to this sort of thing. But the ancients did. They demonize, they demonize the Hebrews. Right? If those Hebrews would just die, we are the inheritors of all the blessings of the book. We are the chosen people now. And this is basically what they said. The church, meaning the Gentile church, has inherited everything that was promised to the chosen people. The chosen people are no more. They killed God. They killed the Hebrews. They killed Yeshua, right? They killed God. There can be no expiation possible for this. In doing so, they gave up the mantle of the chosen people. Do you believe that? Does that fit your understanding of what Yeshua said? And it wasn't the Hebrews that it was the Romans. It was the Romans who, who were in charge of having him executed. Yes, a lot of there were Hebrew priests and stuff that participated in this, especially Herod Antipas, because they wanted him gone. But the Romans were the ones who had the authority to do that. Does it surprise you that the Roman church would give the Romans a pass and blame it all on the Hebrews? Does that surprise you? The Romans executed Yeshua. They were the ones ultimately responsible. It wouldn't have happened without Pilate, Pontius Pilate, giving in to the pressure. Okay, I just want to make sure you're on board here. You're following what we're saying. You may not agree, but I just want you to be able to follow it. The Romans killed them. Then they blamed it all on the Jews and gave themselves a pass. Surprise, surprise. All right? So, over time and distance, this anti-Semitism grew stronger and stronger. And, of course, the Jews were rebelling against the Romans constantly. So they engaged in 150 years of war with the Romans. In that time, they killed as many Jews proportionate to their world population as were killed in the Holocaust, about one out of three Jews. And they left millions, apparently, according to some records, they left hundreds of thousands of Jews dead in the street when they put down these revolts of the Jews against the Romans. So that was part of it. But that's long gone. That doesn't explain the anti-Semitism that has been building in the church throughout, throughout time. And the Holocaust was not an accident. Right? couldn't have happened if the church were had a different attitude toward Hebrews, right? They couldn't have pulled it off. So this anti-Semitism is the cause for, for the enduring plague of anti-Semitism. So this was happening, the needle was moving. The most 
the most Hebrew-positive book of the Bible is Matthew, followed by Luke. Paul straddled defense. I've become all things to all people, so that I might by any means save some of them. Right? So he spoke, he spoke with a different voice to the Hebrews and a different voice to the Gentiles. So he's straddling the fence, trying to keep the church together. Right? Because the, the entire gospel story, the entire New Testament, is the record of the divorce proceedings between the Hebrew church and the Greco-Roman church. The entire New Testament. But you'll never hear that from the pulpit either because our church, our Greek church, our Greco-Roman church has inherited everything from the Hebrew, everything was hunky-dory and swell, right? All those people were Jews in the New Testament. They're all Jews. The believers in the Messiah, they were Jews too. They went to the synagogue. Right, so they just sort of papered over. You know, this is our, our, they divorced themselves from their Hebraic roots. What a novel concept for us, right? That the Roman church would divorce themselves from their Hebraic roots. They cut themselves off from the Hebraic roots. They claimed the mantle of the chosen people. We are the chosen people now, right? The Gentile church. The Jews are kaput, right? Well, guess who was a Jew? Yeshua. There's a rumor. All the apostles, long before there was any Gentile church, they were spreading the word throughout the known world. Those people, they were all Jews, right? Okay, so they're doing this strange little dance where they're trying to push away the Hebrew Messiah and embrace the Greek Jesus. It's called schizophrenia, is what it's called. No, it, it, it is, you know. You're, you're, you're speaking with two minds. It speaks of it in James. That's the first publication of the Hebrew Gospel Publication Project. James speaks of it. He says, God hates the double-minded. You don't even know who you are. So the modern church is the schizophrenic church. Really, they're, they're trying to embrace a Greek archetype and destroy the Hebrew, and destroy the Hebrew Messiah literally, and destroy his church, his, his messianic church, the earliest church, the church that founded it all and spread the word to the corner of the world, right? We just kind of skip over that and ignore it and cover it up and, you know, and let's skip to chapter 8 of Acts and start with Paul. <laughs> Have you noticed that? The Acts of the Apostles, they mention them all once and then they don't mention them again. <laughs> right? They mention Peter, James, and John, okay? And a few mentions of the others. But by chapter 8, it's all about Paul and the rest of the Bible is about Paul. The rest of the Greek Bible is about Paul. So Paul actually started Christianity. Okay, so Mark and John. John, remember the love gospel? This was actually edited by the Greeks. And you don't have to believe me. Read the, read the signature page of John. It's the final page. The final page. This is the one who wrote these things and gave this testimony. And we know his testimony is true. Well, who is this we, white man? Right? Who is this we? You know, it's the Greek editors of the Bible. They weren't too suave and sophisticated. There's more than 
60 third-person insertions in John, which takes the love gospel and gives it the dubious distinction of having the most anti-Judaic declarations of any book in the Bible. And the insertions are not hard to figure out. Okay, when it says this being interpreted means they're saying it's being translated, right? Or why look for another explanation? So that's a great study. It's not one we're going to go into here. But John was apparently written from writings and people's notes from his, his, uh, his preaching. But it was not written by John. It was written by Greeks and probably a committee of them, as far as we can tell. Right, there's more. There's more on John. And I'm not saying, I'm, please, I'm not trying to say John is not the Word of God. It is the Word of God. The Gospel of John. It is the Word of God. Okay? However, it was probably not written by John, so it was written by Greek editors, and they kind of inserted some things they wanted to insert. We know where they are. I can show you each one of them. We can go over them. Right? But that's my job, is to see when things were inserted into the Bible, when things were omitted from the Bible, when things were changed in the Bible, so we can get back to the real Bible that we began with. That's my job. And hopefully I'll make it through this life without being burned at the stake. The Hebrew gospel fell into a haze of suspicion in the Orthodox Church because it was increasingly perceived as a rival and renegade tradition in competition with the emergent Greek canon of the greater church. Do less to any objectionable content. The Nazarenes were very Orthodox. They accepted the authority of the mainstream church, the Greek church, and they believed in the things they believed in. So it was not the contents. It was the fact that they were Jews. Disfavor was to the was due less to objectionable content of the Hebrew gospel than to disfavor of the Jewish Christian communities that used it. The entire New Testament are the proceedings of a divorce court. Kind of papered over because they don't want to show this big schism thing, but it's there. It's there. You can find it when you're looking for it. It's definitely there. And they did declare the Messianic community to be heretic in the 4th century. No longer a part of the church. And they did begin to hunt them to extinction and burn their scriptures. That's why the Hebrew Gospel is the most forbidden book in the history of humankind. Books on witchcraft, you can find them anywhere. Hebrew Gospels, come to me. All right. Here's what modern scholars believe. This is the mainstream current academic viewpoint. The working hypothesis of modern scholarship is that an erroneous judgment about the existence of an original Hebrew Gospel entered the bloodstream of the church as early as Papias and veneration for ancient testimony caused the error to be transmitted and elaborated rather than being rectified and uprooted. Okay, so Papias made a mistake and everybody followed along. You've just seen the tip of the iceberg of the attestations of the early church. Right? And I'll show you a lot more evidence, but 
Uh, this is patently ridiculous, but it is what everybody is programmed to believe. Greek primacy of the Gospels. Despite the fact they're all Hebrew, every original manuscript was written in Greek. They weren't even literate. It says that in Scripture. James and John, they were not, Peter and John, they were not literate. Now, they did learn later. Okay, I'm not saying that, because education is a really big part of the Messianic Church. Right? So uh, they did learn later, but at that time they were not even literate. God gave them, he called people according to their character, and he gave them what they needed to carry out their mission. What did he give them? He gave them the word of God, speaking in tongues, the ability to speak to anybody in the world, the poor and the downtrodden in their language, and tell them the word of God. Right? That's what he gave them. Gave them what they needed. And he appointed Matthew to write the gospel in Hebrew. Right? And Paul to write the word in Greek. Sounds like a good plan to me. I'm not arguing with him. Right? He didn't want people from Harvard and Yale. That would have been the Hillel school and the Shammai school. That was the way things were done. You go to the Hillel and Shammai school and you, you go there and you teach the next generation, the most prosperous, the elite. You teach the children of the elite and they will go out and propagate your religious values among the people when they take over leadership. Today that would be go convince the people at Harvard and Yale and they'll propagate your message, right? Yehovah had another plan. He didn't care about their elitism that was as strong back then as it is today. He didn't care about their elitism. He chose people for the quality of their character, not the amount of money in their pocket and the, and the, the, the influence of their, of their parents. He didn't care about that. He chose them and he equipped them, right? And the elite hated, they hated Yeshua and his ragtag band of Talmudim. They hated them. Did I make that emphatic enough? <laughs> Thank God we've gotten over that, right? Demonizing people and hating the religious, the people of sincere faith. Aren't you glad that we've gotten over all that, demonizing those people? Okay, so that's, that's what he chose people according to the quality of their character. Everyone that Yeshua chose, the Father led him to. It's quite evident in the Bible. And those are the people he worked with, the people chosen by Yehovah, and Yehovah equipped them with speaking in tongues exactly what they needed to go into in the entire word, the world and spread the word. Would you agree? He was not there just for the elite. He was there for all of us. Right? Hallelujah. Can I hear an amen? Does that make sense to you? He didn't care about Harvard and Yale. You know, he was there for everybody, the downtrodden, the poor. So, there you have it. All right, so the Hebrew Gospels drawn up by St. Matthew about 40 A.D., carried with them into exile by the fugitive Christians when they left Jerusalem forever, a little before the final destruction of the temple in 71 A.D. So there have been a few people that have talked about this and researched it. 
Remember they went to Pella? It says in Luke, when, when the armies of the Romans, of the prince that would be Titus, who was the general of Vespasian, his father, he was to become emperor himself. Titus was. He was the prince, the Roman prince. It was his armies that surrounded Jerusalem. Right? And they let people go because there'd be fewer people on the walls. They'd have to fight. So the, the Christians were told by an angel to leave, and they did. And they went to Pella, which is in Jordan. All right? And there they established a Messianic Christian community. Later, well, some of them settled there. So later, some came back to Jerusalem when things were clear. Others went on to Sephrod in Spain, the largest population of Jews and Messianics in the known world. About half a million Jews and Messianics in Sephrod. Right? So... <clears throat> The Jews revolted against Rome. They destroyed the temple. Jerusalem was razed. Now Jerusalem, they, they, they destroyed the temple. Later on, when they rebelled again, they razed all of the city and salted the ground so nothing could grow there. So continual revolts by the stubborn uh, Hebrews. And of course, that meant you had to raise taxes and raise levies from the other countries. So they weren't big fans of the Jews. Right, of the Hebrews. They were not big fans of them. That's one reason there was more anti-Semitism, but all that has gone long ago, but the anti-Semitism has continued because it's continually sown and preached by the church. They went to Sephiroth, right? and that's mentioned in the Bible. The captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sephiroth, that is Spain. Before it was Spain, it was Sephiroth, which means the people of the book. The Sephardim are the people of the book. It was the nation of the book. Right? What book? Well, the Bible. They're famous. Or they're Hebrew Bibles, right? Okay, so it was the second Jerusalem. The Sephardim were reported to have been exiled from Judea by Titus, second temple, even by Nebuchadnezzar, the destruction of the first temple. They went to Hispania. Spain, right? And they resettled about 80,000 captives from the destruction of the first temple there. So they had a long history. It's all written in a book. I think it's called Sons of Zion versus Sons of Greece. Read all about it. It goes back to the beginning to explain the, the, the dynamic between the Greeks and the Hebrews, which started in Genesis. The Golden Age of the Sepharim. Sepharim was the second Jerusalem. Millions of Jews flourished for centuries in Sepharad under Visigoth Muslim and Christian rule. Famous for its Hebrew Bibles. There are hundreds of thousands of Messianic Christians there called conversos, the converted ones, right? And Paul mentioned it. He said, whenever I take my journey into Sepharad, it says in the Bible, translated Spain because it is Spain, I will come to you. So that's Romans 15.24. This was the greatest desire of his heart, he said. Go there. Lots of Messianics were there. Lots of Jews were there. So they had big synagogues. They always went first to the synagogues. Because they remember, they were a sect of Judaism. They were welcomed in the synagogues. Well, this new Messianic church exploded in the medieval times, medieval in the Middle Ages. And about more than half of these half million Jews that were living there converted to Christianity. Now, some of them were forced, right? But most of them converted of their own free will. 
you know, after all, this is a Hebrew story about a Hebrew boy made good, right? And it's in the Hebrew Gospels, which were still extant at the time. So some of them wanted to assimilate into the church, and others said, heck no. We want our scripture in the Lashon HaKodesh, the Holy Word, because that's who we are. This is a Hebrew story, and we have the Hebrew Gospels. And many of the synagogues had been abandoned, so, and the, the, the old Christians didn't want to mingle with these new Jewish Christians, so they gave them the abandoned synagogue. Many of the rabbis had converted. Lots of people. Hundreds of thousands, right? Lots of rabbis had converted. So they kept going to their same synagogue with their same rabbi. Of course, now he's a priest, right? And they kept studying the Torah. They were sincere believers in the Hebrew Messiah. It was a true resurgence of the Messianic church of the first century among many of these people. Many of them. Not all of them. Let me hear it again. Right. They were true believers. Now, some just wanted to assimilate into the Roman church. And some didn't want to have to do with any of it, the bloody business of religion. There had been so much strife, so many pogroms against the Jews and Messianics. The Messianics, they're never exempted from these pogroms and these crusades and these holocausts. Because they're Jews, right? So they don't get a pass. Remember, Constantine divorced both the Messianic Church and the Judaic Church. They were declared heretics, right? So you read about the Spanish Inquisition and the horrible things that were done to these people. And I probably don't need to tell you, I think everybody's got some idea of this, right? But it was horrible and it was extensive and it was gross. It was brutal. It scours the soul to read about it. And their final excuse is, well, they were, after all, heretics. And that is their final excuse for it. Many, the, but the annals of the Inquisition are full. Yes, some people cracked and would say anything you wanted them to say. But many, many of these Messianic believers went to their death under horrible torture, every anguish you could possibly imagine or man could invent in their perverted, craven soul to do to these people. And they went to their death without saying a word because they knew they were going to kill them anyway. And they wanted them to give up, give up their family to the Inquisition, their friends in the Inquisition, and to accuse other people. And this was not a trial. The accusation was basically already a conviction. You never got to know who had accused you, and of what. You didn't even know your sentence until you'd been held in prison for maybe two or three years, and then you finally went to the auto da fe. Then you'd learn they're going to burn you at the stake, or whatever they were going to do to you. Seize all your property, throw your family out into the street to die of, of starvation, throw them into beggary. But they were, after all, heretics, right? Right, so so the, the the church itself actually gave us what I call the template of the Inquisition. Okay, what does this mean? This means that God gives us a permission to steal, lie, 
kill anyone who does not hold to our doctrine. We are acting in the name of God and Yeshua. When we do this, when we cleanse the earth of this, we're acting in the name of Yeshua. You know the Greek one? (laughs) They didn't say Yeshua. We're acting in the name of Jesus, the Greek archetype. All right? What an abomination. I don't want to stand before God having said things like that, having, having destroyed, having altered and manipulated and contorted the message of Yeshua to where he wants us to kill people in his name, torture them and kill them and deprive families of their breadwinner and pitch them out in the street where many died. Right? This is horrible stuff, and I'm sorry I even have to say it here, but you all know it, right? You've all heard of the Spanish Inquisition and and the other Inquisitions, all right? We do know this, yes? Okay, so it's not news to you. What may be news to you is that this whole thing was started in order to destroy the resurgent Messianic church, right? That had their own yeshiva schools, they had their own synagogues that used the Hebrew Gospels as the basis of their faith, that worshipped the Hebrew Messiah, that held to the Torah? That doesn't sound like Roman Catholicism, does it? So they obviously had to be destroyed, and they proceeded to do that. And I'm sorry. It's not going to change just because you don't believe it, or you don't want to believe it, you don't want to hear it. The template of the Inquisition was bequeathed to the Western nations, right? And the Protestants took it over. I'd like to think they were more moral. I mean, I think they were in many ways. But they used the same template. They did, they did kill some heretics. They did burn some heretics at the stake, but the Protestants really didn't have much of a stomach for it. I think they had the idea this is what we're trying to change, right? But they did get into witch burning. So they, you know, they massacred about 80,000 witches in the 17th century and even into the 18th century, right? Okay, so they adopted the template of the Inquisition, right? And when the Roman, when the Spaniards spread the word of God, the banner of God and Jesus throughout the nations, they did so by the sword, right? And they treated the infidels just like they treated the heretics. You can break any of the Ten Commandments, They don't mean anything if you're a heretic or you're an infidel. We can do anything to you. If I want your wife, I just chop your head off and I take her. If I want your gold, same story. So this is is the sword of salvation that spread throughout the world because of the apostate church. Does it sound apostate to you? Well, it is. It is a hard pill to swallow. It is a very hard pill to swallow. This template of the Inquisition was bequeathed to the modern world by the apostate church. All right? And it was even secularized. Any ism that thought they had the one true path felt they're just doing what the church has taught them, felt like they had the authority to kill people that disagreed with them. Communism killed Oh gosh, 75 million in, in China to consolidate communism, 50 million in Russia, 2 million in tiny Cambodia, and you know, hundreds of thousands in Cuba. All right? But they would have done that anyway, okay? 
But it's nice to have the cover of the church, isn't it? And it's okay to do that. As long as you have the one true word, the one true way, you can do that. So that was bequeathed to modern, modern civilization by the apostate church. Pretty hard lesson, isn't it? Don't, 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 don't believe me. Research it yourself. Okay? But here's the thing. They have never repented of the great apostasy, so it repeated over and over and over again. You can see this is all coming from the original apostasy. Right? Am I right? You know, it's okay to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, the church of Yeshua the Messiah, the Messian apostolic church, because they don't agree with our doctrine. So we can destroy them. We can hunt them to extinction. We can burn their scriptures. And that repeated over and over and over again. In the medieval period with the surgent Messianic Church, with the Crusades against the Cathars, who were Neo-Messianics in the southern France, the Crusades against the Waldensians in the north, over and over and over again. And that template was inherited by what we would call modern Western civilization. You remember the Holocaust? They would never have gotten away with that if this anti-Semitism had not been preached to generation after generation of Christians. The template of the Inquisition is the template of modern civilization and the way it deals with conflict. Prove me wrong. I would love it. Because I hate to even think of it. But it's true. And it's true because they have never repented of this apostasy. Never has church repented this apostasy. Okay, but our church broke from the Roman church a long time ago. Okay, did you break from the church because of this apostasy? And the answer is no, they did not. So they bear the generational sin of it. The church profited greatly from this. They, they took all the property of the, of the Messianics in Spain, and they were very rich. They were very prosperous because of their education. They are very prosperous. And they wanted their money, so they burned them at the stake and took their money. Right? And they, they took this money, and they blackened their reputation. And they tortured and destroyed them. Right? So, they've never repented for that. But we can. Right? And it starts with you. Do you think, I'm just, let me ask you, and don't be afraid to if you don't agree with me, do you think it was right to declare the original church of Yeshua HaMashiach to be heretic and to pursue them and to extinction and burn their scriptures? Do you think that was right? Can you see how that apostasy was repeated over and over and over again throughout history, all the pogroms, all the crusades, all the inquisitions, the Holocaust? They were all due this template of the inquisition. It's okay to, to slaughter infidels. It's okay. Just it's okay with heretics. They're doing it at home. It's okay to lie to them, to cheat them, to steal from them, to kill them, to covet their wives, covet their property. Right? All those things are fine. Can you find an apostasy grosser than that? Please tell me if you can. Right? Well, let's, why don't we bow our heads in prayer for just a minute. Now, remember, you don't, you don't have to, if you don't, agree with this. You know, search it out. Study it yourself.
Yehovah, we just ask, we just lift up our hearts in repentance of all the things that have been done to the true believers of God and even the innocent victims that weren't believers, that were, that were harmed and killed and destroyed and stolen from by the apostate church. And we resolve ourselves to rid the earth of this plague of apostasy and of cruelty that has been this template of the Inquisition that has been bequeathed to the modern church and modern society. And we did ourselves to interrupt that, to not let it happen again, and to inform others, and to make sure the church knows that this is wrong and the church as an organization has to repent of this apostasy. In the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, amen. It will never stop until believers repent of it not that it was your fault, it was not your fault, but the, the effects of it are still being felt. The generational sin of it is still with us. The template of the inquisition is still with us, right? And bequeathed the Arabs who think it's right to slaughter anybody that disagrees with them. It's not gone. It will never be gone until we repent of it. And there is no corporate exception for sin. None. Corporate means just because it was the body of the church, no individual is responsible. It doesn't work that way. We all bear some weight of it. You know, for example, if you thought, well, yeah, sure, it was okay. They were heretic, you know, tortured them, burned them at the stake. You know, maybe it was, well, you, you carry the template of the Inquisition in you. Right? You need to take that in prayer to the Father and see if that's the blueprint he wants you to have. Are you with me? 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Columbus was a messianic. How do we know this? Do you know? Because <laughs> I told you. Okay, he knew Hebrew. That's a dead giveaway, right? Okay, all right, so he knew Hebrew. And uh, the Jews were being, the, after they had conquered Granada and kicked out all, of the, all the Arabs, they turned immediately to expel all the Jews. Of course, they wanted them to leave their money and property behind. And uh, the Inquisition already kicked off. And they were trying to rid Spain of its Messianic community. So they were fleeing the Inquisition. So they're all trying to get out. And the deadline for getting out was August 3rd, 1492. That happens to be the day that Columbus ship sailed for the New World. Financed by Messianics. And their names were Luis, Luis Carvajal and uh, uh, Garcia. Carvajal and Garcia. Uh, I'm sorry, Luis Santangel was the... the he was the treasurer of King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain. The story is that she pawned her royal jewels. That's a bunch of bunk. You know, the messianic financier of the treasurer of the realm convinced them to let, to let Columbus go on this very expensive and dicey mission, and he would raise the money for it. Columbus was a messianic. His voyage to the New World was funded by Messianics. We know who they were. We know the whole story, right? 
and he spoke Hebrew. He used the Hebrew date on all of his letters, except the one he sent to Queen Isabella. All right? He wrote at the top of it the, the, uh, the words that were an abbreviation for, with the help of heaven, I begin this, writing this in Hebrew. He wrote at the top of all his letters. What do you think? Pretty much a dead giveaway? His sons on his deathbed recited a Kaddish prayer over him. Right? They say it was Italian because the, the Italian consulate paid Washington Irving to write his autobiography. And so he dutifully reported that he was from Genoa, Italy. But he didn't speak Italian. He never set foot in Italy. His wife was from Genoa, so it was a good cover story. Now, he burnt his family records so the Inquisition would not find out that he had Messianic blood, that he had Jewish blood. It's a story. Washington Irving wrote about it. He dutifully reported he was from Genoa, and then he told all the other details of the story. All right, so it's, it's an open secret, but he was Messianic. And he was looking for a safe place for the Messianics to go. That's why they were willing to give him all the money he needed to go to the New World. They're hoping to find, they were hoping to find a safe haven. Okay, but he knew Hebrew. This is important. And when he stepped foot on the North American continent, he dedicated it to Yehovah. He wrote about it. Yeah, let me hear it. All right, and all the early, uh, all the early discoverers were, were made by uh, usually not the, the captains of the vessels, but they were usually the navigators and the pilots because they knew how to use the astrolabe and the, and the navigation equipment. The, the Messianics were foremost among the map makers, so they, they were deeply involved with the entire discovery of the rest of the world, especially the New World, right? And in the colonization of it, they were fleeing from Spain as much as 15% of the colonists in the New World. Every colony, including the one established by Columbus, were heavily populated by Messianic. Jamaica, they were 50% of the population. Right? So they were really for prime movers. Okay, they may have only been 15% of the population, but they were ship owners, they were financiers, they established a worldwide the expulsion, they went everywhere in the world and established the international banking system. Right? So they may only be 15% of the population, but in any given place, any given port, they controlled 75% of the commerce. They were the masters of international trade, right? Starting with our friend, yes. When I start what? Yeah, it's all in the book. It is. It's all in the book. <laughs> Remember, I found so much documentation that I had to break out two books. I didn't want to write one of those big ones. You know, people keep in the outhouse and all. That's terrible, you know. So I, I broke it into two volumes. This goes to Constantine tells the story from the beginning of Genesis to Constantine of the, the chosen people and, the, and the, the conflict that last, that has lasted now for millennium between the sons of Zion and the sons of Greek. It is really incredible from the pages of Genesis to Revelation. It's all there. Okay, so this, this volume two called Messianic Church Rising 
volume two of Sons of Zion versus Sons of Grace, tells the story from Constantine, the fourth century, up to the present time of the survival of the Hebrew, of the, of the Messianic church. In all its forms, the Messianic church and the Jewish Christian who intermingled with the Neo-Messianics who were mostly Gentile, right? And carried, but they still had the same goal, the restoration of the first century church of the Messiah and the apostles. Always, everywhere, that was their goal. So it traces them under the many names in the underground church. So this is the journey of the Hebrew Gospels. It left Spain along with the Messianics fleeing the Inquisition. And so this was used by the Hebrews in those critical years of 1493 and 94 when they had two lunar eclipses, two blood moons, two years in a row on Passover and Sukkot. We've had this happen three times in this century. It was not been too long. It was during the Hamas war, the tunnel war, that the last one happened. Every time they denote some momentous challenge to the Hebrew people. Okay. So right after 1492, the expulsion of the Jews and the Messianics fleeing the Inquisition, they had the Hebrew Gospels. These Hebrew Gospels that you're holding your hands in that supported them throughout the, the incredibly challenging things. They were raped and robbed and persecuted and they had, to, they had to find new homes all over the world and most places wouldn't accept them. So there are very few places they could go. One with, that's why so many went to the New World. Okay, you, you with me on this? Okay, and those Hebrew Gospels that many of you held in your hands, that was the book that they used to support them, to, to lift them up to sanctify them, to strengthen them, the Word of God. That was the book that they used throughout those incredible years. So this is what happened. The first century Hebrew Gospels were still excellent in the 14th century. We have writers that talk about them, that they were still out there. All right, They were translated into the Catalan Gospels because a lot of people didn't, a lot of uh, Messianics did not know Hebrew at that time, but they did know Catalan. In Catalonia, they were... They were translated in Catalan. Shem Tov, you may know the Shem Tov manuscript. Okay, from the same Hebrew Gospels, he, he did Hebrew Matthew in order to give polemic arguments for, because the, the, the church was requiring, was picking Jews, Jewish leaders, and requiring them to debate the prelates of the Roman Catholic Church. And if they lost the debate, their entire community would be forced to convert. Well, Shem Tov won his debate, and he wrote about how you should debate them, you know, to defend your beliefs. And now, although he was Jewish, the Hebrew Matthew that he revived was widely used among Messianic churches throughout Europe. So there's about 28 manuscripts of it that survive. It's just Hebrew Matthew. But there is obviously has correlations with the Hebrew Gospels of Catalonia. They come from the same source. There are verses in there, matching verses, that are found in no other version of the Bible anywhere. Clearly from the same source. Are you with me? Okay. So there, they, that, also, that book has also been translated into. Whenever you find one of these Hebrew Gospels, it was recopied and preserved by a Messianic community because you're risking being burned at the stake to even have one. 
So who's going who's gonna to risk that? Not the Gentile Christians, not the Jews. The Messianics are the only ones who are willing to risk being burned at the stake to preserve the Hebrew Gospels. Jim Tobes said, I've chosen to complete my treatise, even Bohan called the touchstone by transcribing the books of the gospel in spite of the fact that the books are forbidden for us to read. Okay, I want you to note that he talks about the books of the gospel, not the book of the gospel. He was going to do Matthew, Mark, and John too, but he never made it to them. So George Howard, this is the only one that's been translated up to this time. He did an in-depth and thorough analysis, concluding the gospel text is not a new translation, but was a reproduction of an already existing literary Hebrew tradition. Okay, so he's saying it predates the 14th century, which is about the earliest copy we have of it. But in enough of the original text is left intact that we know it came from an early Hebrew source. So the Hebrew gospel survived, and many people said so. Raimundo Martini said that. The Hebrew, a Hebrew translation of the gospels already existed in 13th century Spain. They were there. So what do we need to establish the authenticity of the Hebrew gospels from Catalan? All right. What would be perfect? How do we know these are authentic? How do we know they come from a first century source? Did they come from a first century source? Good question, right? Important question, one that needs to be answered. Well, what would be the perfect criteria for that? How about this? Citation from a credible ancient source as to events or quotations in the Hebrew Gospels from Catalonia or the Hebrew Gospels in general that are different from the Greek Gospels. That makes sense. Something that's different, that was cited by the ancients, as in the Hebrew Gospels, not in the Greek Gospels. With me? All right. Multiple citations would be nice. It's not just from one source. So I'm talking about the ideal here. What would be ideal? What would prove this? All right. Independent historical confirmation. Right. Other sources, historical sources and confirmation in the Hebrew Gospels that we have today, that that is indeed what it says, right? Like the Epiphanius quote. It said the Hebrew Gospels started with in the days when Herod was king of Judea, right? That's what he said way back in the day, and you find that in the Hebrew Gospels of today. Well, St. Jerome translated the Hebrew Gospel, he testified in writing four times that he translated the Hebrew Gospel into Hebrew and Greek. The Gospel according to the Hebrews that we have recently translated. Is he a credible ancient source? Well, about the most credible you can get, really, ancient source. He wrote the Bible. He re-edited the Bible, right? All right, here's the prologue to Matthew in the Hebrew Gospels. The first evangelist wrote this in the holy tongue. That's the Lashon HaKodesh. That is the, and this is, of course, a page view from the Hebrew Gospels. Lashon HaKodesh always refers to Hebrew. Here's an example. Pilate frees Barabbas instead of Yeshua, right? We know this story, yes? Okay, but Jerome says that in the Greek he was called Barabbas, but in the Hebrew he was called the son of the teacher, which is Barabban. Okay? In the gospel, according to the Hebrews. 
Here is the story of Pilate and Barabbas. All four times it mentions him, he is called Barabban. Just as Jerome said from the fourth century. Good? Andrea, yes? Good, no? Get it? Right? Okay, well, that's one correlation. That could be a coincidence. Can dismiss that. Don't know how it got there, but it's just a coincidence, right? Two is a pattern. A pattern of changes is a lot harder to ignore. He also said that there were three instances Jerome preserves evidence of a tradition in the early church that was not the veil in the Holy of Holies that was ruptured at the earthquake when Yeshua was crucified. It was not the veil that was torn. It was the huge lintel stone above the Holy of Holies that cracked in two and fell. Now, do keep in mind, please, that the veil was hanging beneath the lintel. So if the huge lintel stone did crack and fell, it would have torn the curtain. Okay, So it's not a contradiction of the Greek gospel. It's just a Hebrew perspective as opposed to a Greek perspective. You with me? The Greeks, they said the tearing of the curtain allowed them to have direct access to Yeshua. They did not have to go through a Hebrew priest anymore. We have a direct line, a red line to Yehovah. We do not have to go through a Hebrew priest anymore. It was a declaration of independence to them. To the Hebrews, they had been in this temple, and it was magnificent. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world, covered with gold on the inside. Yeshua wasn't impressed. He wasn't. And it's mentioned in all three verses, in three verses, Matthew 27, 51, Mark 15, 38, Luke 23, 45. In the gospel, according to the Hebrews, it was the lintel that cracked and fell. Mentioned in three places, in three of the gospels, it's mentioned. So now, having read this, Jehovah takes me the hand and says, now come over here and look in the Hebrew gospels, see what it says. Take me by the hand. So this is what it says in the Hebrew Gospel. That's the KJV that you know. In the Hebrew Gospel it says, and the temple was broken on both sides, up and down from the front to the back, and the earthquake, and the stones of the temple were split in the middle. Okay, it wasn't some rocks out on the hillside. It was the stones of the temple they're talking about. It's the same word in Hebrew. Ivan, it means a rock or a stone. So he was talking about the stones of the temple being split. It actually says that in KJV, but it, when you translate it, rocks makes it sound like, you know, those little round things out on the hill. You know what I'm saying? Not the big square rectangular things that are in the temple. Okay. So in Mark 15:38, the veil of the temple was rent in two. In the Hebrew Gospels, the temple itself was broken on both sides up and down from the top to the bottom, from the front to the back. In Luke 23, 45, and the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. In the Hebrew Gospels, the sun went dark and covered the temple and it was split in the middle. All three verses refer to the splitting of the temple stones. Rad doesn't even mention the veil. Later on, later on, I became aware that I ha I've got like three manuscripts of the Hebrew Gospels. There's got to be more. I have three sitting in my study in Kerrville, Texas. 
there's got to be more. So I prayed about it, you know, to God. And, and he said to me, after a while, he said, you know, I already told you to get the Hebrew Gospels, so go. Go to Europe and get them. He didn't mention Europe. He just told me to go. I was planning to go to Europe. So I, I did. And, you know, raised the money from my, my, uh, my list of people. Thank you very much. Raised $10,000 from a list of 400 people to go and purchase, find and purchase these manuscripts. I arrive in Europe. First day, I go to the Cambridge University Library and find four manuscripts of the Hebrew Gospels. Two days later, I find another manuscript of the Hebrew Gospels in the Rylands Library in Manchester. All of them come from Cochin, India. And guess what they said? The same thing that the Hebrew Gospels from Catalonia said. In all three verses, they're even more explicit. They say the rock, the entry, the rock over the entry was, was broken into and fell. In all three Gospels, they say the same thing, except they're even more explicit about it. This is a manuscript that has been separated from the one in Catalonia by 2,000 years and 5,000 miles. I'm sure it was just a copy. <laughs> right? There's no way it could have been a copy of the one from the other, right? And it says the same thing. That is pretty cool. You've got to admit that. Can I have an amen? All right, that is pretty cool. All right, so we talked about having independent historical confirmation. Well, and, and multiple citations from other sources. In the Historia Passiones Domini, the history of the passion of God, we don't know who wrote it, it says the Gospel of the Nazarenes was read at that time of Messiah's death. The lintel of the temple of immense size had split. Josephus is the saying. So that's two, two additional sources to Jerome. And overhead, awful voices were heard which said, let us depart from this abode. The temple was corrupted. It was demonized. Big surprise. These people were evil. Herod was evil. The Sadducees and the people that controlled the temple, they were evil. They were fleecing the righteous. It was a cash cow. They didn't want anybody to know that it had been cracked. And nobody was allowed to go in it, so they got away with it. And they wrote the history, so nobody was going to know, right, if they didn't tell them. Right? The early church tradition of the breaking of the lintels, preserved by Jerome from the Hebrew Gospel, was confirmed in all three verses and confirmed by multiple independent sources, historical sources. Now we have a pattern, right? Now we have a pattern. And we see it in the other Hebrew Gospels. It puts a lock on the authenticity of the Hebrew Gospels. Of the Hebrew Gospels. If it's true, it's a huge claim to make, is it not? It is a huge claim for historical and religious reasons. And the same question applies to all the other phenomena. Is there any record of them? The earthquake? Right? The darkening over the temple? The tearing of the veil? Is there any other historical documentation of those? Well, the earthquake that concealed the damage to the Holy of Holies because it's inside a larger temple building, so they could plaster it over, hang a banner, tell everything, everything's fine. No, no, that... That rumor we heard, it's not true. But the, the earthquake also damaged the chamber of Yun Stone, very majestic, about 40 yards from the Holy of Holies. This is where the Sanhedrin met. In fact, they had met that morning 
at daybreak condemn Yeshua to death for blasphemy. The last judgment ever made in the Sanhedrin, in the chamber of Yun Stone. God's testimony to the killing of his son. The earthquake, the darkening of the temple, the desecration of the Holy of Holies, the total desecration of the Sanhedrin chamber. It was unusable. It might collapse at any time. They had to move into the marketplace where they debated the law to the smell of manure and the bleeding of sheep for the rest of their existence. That's independent historical confirmation. It's in the Talmud. Forty years before the destruction of the temple, the Sanhedrin was removed from the chamber of hewn stones and had to reconvene in the marketplace. The Talmud tells us that this was when the Sanhedrin ceased to judge capital offenses. They moved from the chamber of hewn stones to the marketplace. That happened in the year of the Messiah's ministry, right? Because they came to Pilate and they said, this man is against Rome. We want him crucified. And he said, judge him by your law. And they said to Pilate, we are not allowed to do capital punishment of anyone. They had so overused it, taking people's lives and causing rebellion because of their injustice, that Rome forbid them to use capital punishment that year. So when he said, go judge him by your law, they said, well, we can't kill anybody. That's been, that has been taken away from us. Yes? Yes, right, we have to approve it. We have to do it. That was that year. That year from Passover 30 AD to Passover 31 AD encompassed Yeshua and Messiah's one year ministry and his crucifixion. Well, I told you this. He told you to take him and judge him by your law, but they replied, it is not lawful us to put him into death. This is all in scripture. So if you don't like it, argue with, argue with Yehovah. All right? Yehovah was judged in that chamber. According to Luke twenty-two sixty-six, the daybreak trial where Yeshua was condemned to death for blasphemy, for claiming me the Son of God took place in the Sanhedrin council chamber that was destroyed by an earthquake that very same day. It was the last judgment made there. Yehovah himself gave testimony to Yeshua as a son of God by covering the temple in darkness in the middle of the day, causing an earthquake to break the stones, cracking the walls of the inner temple, desecrating the Holy of Holies, and splitting the lintel and the veil, which was hanging underneath that. And they were never able to put it back together. It was desecrated forever. As for the Sanhedrin, they would step through the manure to get to their new council chamber in the marketplace. They never reoccupied the chamber of Yun Stone. That magnificent temple had been built in exactly 40, it took 46 years to build it, exactly 40 years later. After this, it was destroyed. And what did Yeshua say? He prophesied that. He said, you see this? His apostles were so impressed. He said, you see all this? Not one stone. Not one stone 
will be found against another one. Not one stone will be on another one. And the Romans came and they burnt, they burnt down the temple in 70 AD. They burnt it. And all the gold plate on the inside was melted and, and flowed down between the cracks and the rocks. And to scavenge the gold, they pulled literally every stone away from another to scavenge the gold that had dripped down into the crack. That's believable, isn't it? Lots of gold in there. Who's going to pass that up? So they tore the entire temple apart because stone doesn't burn. Right? Exactly 40 years later, prophesied by Daniel and Yeshua himself. keep forgetting to show you the picture. Matthew 121, and you shall call his name Yeshua, for he shall save his people. In Hebrew, Yeshua means salvation. Right? And so this is a root word of it. It's called paranomosia. You two, use two words with the same root, similar sound in a sense, right? So you shall call his name Yeshua, for he shall Yoshia his people. He shall save his people. What does that matter? Does the name of God even matter? I mean, come on. Isn't it reasonable when the Bible is translated into another language that you would change the name of God to a word in your language, right? Right? I mean, it's forbidden, but I can understand that thinking. But I have to tell you something really important here. It does not matter what I think. It matters what Yehovah thinks about his name. And he absolutely forbid that. Absolutely forbid changing his name to a foreign name. They call him Baalim, foreign name of God. 7,000 times it's mentioned in the Old Testament, hundreds of commands about how to, how to deal with the, the sacred name. You shall sing it out, shout it out. You shall sing it. You shall greet people by it. You shall swear by it as Yehovah lives. I'm telling you the truth. In the Psalms, it's 700 times and it's intended to be sung, right? This was a power play by the Romans who forbid the use of the sacred name and the, the Jews. And this is second century, not first century. Yeshua used the name. They forbid the name. They forbid the religion. Right? If you said the name of God, you would be executed. So the Jewish authorities had to make a decision. Are they going to lose a whole generation of rabbis, or are they going to make a virtue of necessity? So they decided to make a virtue of necessity. I've been meaning to tell you, knuckleheads, that the name of God is so sacred that you cannot say it, or you will lose your salvation. That's what they said to the people. And now people really believe that they say the name of God. They will lose their salvation. It's an offense to God himself. Not if you read scripture. All right, so that's, that's, that's what happened here. So does the name of God matter? This is Proverbs. Who has established all the corners of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? It's in Proverbs. Old Testament. Do you not know that every word of God will be tested? Now, I told you about this. 
right? Remember, they took they were eliminating the name of God from the New Testament, so they changed this greeting, very typical greeting for Hebrew believers. God is our salvation, or may God be your salvation. There are variants, all right? They changed this and replaced it with all hail, the Roman military salute, yes? So here's in the Hebrew gospel. May God save you. May God be your salvation, okay? You with me here? All right? God is our salvation is a typical rendition of that. Sukkot, we're going back to Sukkot in the year 30 AD, the climax of the week-long Feast of Tabernacles, right? Eight days, climax. They go down in parade in all their finery with lutes and drums and swinging incense and everyone from all over the world following them down to pull the water of salvation from the living water. Living water is flowing water. Because if it stops, it becomes stagnant. They go down to the stream, the pool of Gihon, and they pull out the water in Isaiah, the water of salvation. What's the word for salvation in Hebrew again? Let me hear it. Louder. So this is the water of salvation they're pulling from the stream, right? And they go back up. You know, the drums, remember? The lyre, the flute. Right? The incense swinging back up to the temple. And they add red blood into the water of salvation. Red blood represents, I'm sorry, red wine represents blood. So they pour it in. Now it's red. The water of salvation is now the blood of salvation. And, they, and what, what is the word for salvation in Hebrew again? Yeshua. So this is now the blood of Yeshua, and they pour it out onto the altar, and everyone assembled from all parts of the earth says in one voice, Yehovah is our Yeshua. Satan had to stop that, didn't he? I mean, some people are going to wake up. Yehovah Yoshiahenu. Yehovah is our salvation. Yehovah is our Yeshua. You know, but that year, there was this young punk that stood up, talk about chutzpah. As they were about to pour the blood of Yeshua onto the altar, he said, all who thirst come to me, and I will give you rivers of flowing water from the core of your being. That's chutzpah. That's a definition of chutzpah, right? And you know who that was, right? Yeshua had to kill the name. Now, it's very interesting that the Greeks changed the name of Yeshua and, and, and Yehovah but that somehow they didn't need to change the name of Hasastan. Apparently they knew him well enough that they didn't have to change his name to Greek. Right? I'm, you interpret that any way you want. <clears throat> Yehovah is our Yeshua. One last thing. I know I've kept you a long time, but the last, the day following Sukkot, the same thing, same thing, the day following the Feast of Tabernacles was called Shemini Atzeret, and on this day the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in the act of adultery, right? Demanding that he do something about it because they wanted him to stone her so they could, you know, 
they could frame him as this brutal, bloodthirsty guy, right? Okay, caught in the act of adultery, he was. I wonder who she was with. It doesn't take two. But they didn't bring him, right? This is called the wandering parable. It's probably the very best known parable in the Bible, right? We all know it. Do we not? The women taken in adultery? Not in the Greek. Not in the Greek. It's not in the earliest, say, hundred manuscripts of the Gospels that we know in Greek. In fact, it's not in the earliest 200 manuscripts that we know of in Greek. In fact, it's not in the earliest 257 <coughs> manuscripts of the Gospel that we have in Greek. The, er- the earliest It was in the Hebrew Gospel. And this parable was put into the Greek canon in the 6th century because it was in the Greek, in the Hebrew Gospel. Various early church fathers say that. You know. And I, do, I have no doubts about its authenticity. Right? But it's important for you to understand that this was saved because it was in the Hebrew Gospels, not because it was in the Greek. It was put in in the 6th century. It's probably the best known uh, for Bible. And this is the way they did it. Now you remember when he was, this all was happening. He was standing in the courtyard of the temple when they brought this woman to him. This is where they judged people. And this is how they judged people especially in cases of adultery, for example, they would take a chalice of red wine, which symbolizes blood, and they would bend down, and they would take some of the dust from the floor of the temple where the prophets of God had walked. The temple was ancient, and they would sprinkle it in the chalice. It now becomes the blood of Jehovah's prophets. Today we've sworn on our Bible they swore by the blood of Jehovah's prophets, and you would be required to swear, to drink of it, and to swear under penalty of death, spiritual death, if nothing else, that you were telling the truth. And both would actually have to do that. But they only brought the one. They only brought the woman. Okay? You remember what Yeshua did? And I tell you, reams and reams of paper. So many trees have been destroyed to make paper to try and explain what happened here. Okay, he bent down, and they say he was like drawing, writing in the dust, right? Okay, and he made his famous words, he who has is without sin cast the first stone. The Pharisees knew they had been caught here, and they actually believed in God and were afraid of his retribution. And they had just lied, lied their little heinies off. You know, to try and trap him. So one by one, they just slipped away. Right? And you, you know why? Because every Jew in that crowd knew what was happening. The priest was preparing the chalice by putting the dust into the chalice. Now, of course, he didn't have a chalice, but it would have been the simplest of things for him to call for one. That's the way they judged people. 
That was not a problem, but he went bent down and he drew in the dirt. Every Jew there knew what he was doing. Are you prepared to swear by the blood of Yehovah's prophets to the truth of what you're saying here? And they skedaddled. They left quickly. Do you blame them? All right. So that was the story of the woman taken in adultery. And this is actually reported in the, in the patristic literature in various publications before it was actually put back into the Greek canon of the Bible. It came from the Hebrew Gospels. So I want us to talk again. It's called the wandering parable because they didn't know where to put it. They literally did not. It really does not belong in John, but that's where it ended up. It was put in Luke. It was put in John a couple of places. Eventually it settled where it did, and I think it's in the 8th chapter of John. But that's why it's called the wandering parable. They didn't know really where it, where it belonged. But this is, this is what happened. You know, so we've got to ask ourselves again, does it matter that everything we know about our Hebrew Savior comes to us through the Greek filter? a different language, culture, and thought? Does it matter that Yeshua did not give the Nazi salute to his followers when he came back from the dead? Does it matter that this, this parable was from the Hebrew Gospels? Every, there are many early church fathers that say it did. That's how it got back into the Greek canon. But it was in the 6th century when that happened. Late, really late for something that major to get put into the Gospels. So the Hebrew Gospels have been the foundation, the authentic fountainhead of the Word since the first century. It doesn't matter that we tossed that all out the window and did it in Greek and said that's the earliest, most authentic part of Scripture. Okay? I've got to tell you, I don't care. If, the, if, a, if a manuscript was originally written in Greek and we have it, fine, good. That's the one I want to study. If it originally was in Hebrew, good. That's the one I want to study. I just want the truth. Thank you for that. All right? So the parts that were written in Hebrew, we need to go back to the Hebrew. The parts that were written in Greek, okay, let's go back to the Greek. Let's just have the truth. I'm not threatened by it being part of it being written in Greek and part of it being written in Hebrew. I'm not threatened by that at all. I just want the truth. All right, anybody with me? Hallelujah, brothers. Hallelujah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Question, comments, Hebrew jokes? Yeah. Okay, let me, let me uh, tell you something. I will sit here and answer your questions as long as you want to, but if you want to get up, go to the bathroom, get a drink, buy some books, you feel free to do so. It's a great way to support our ministry because I, I love to be able to give you something for it. The three-and-a-half-year ministry came from Eusebius, who wrote in praise of Constantine. He wrote the autobiography of Constantine. He rewrote the Bible. All right? He was a big suck-up. He was a syncophant of Constantine. All right, and he was establishing the divine right of kings, right? Because it, it says that the Savior will come, the Messiah will come, 
and he will end the oppression of the saints and rule over all the kingdoms of the world. Who could that possibly be? Constantine. But Constantine was not a believer. He was using the church to glue together the Roman Empire that was falling apart, right? And so this is, that's the truth of the story. So he invented the three-and-a-half-year ministry before the fourth century. Everybody thought it was one-year ministry because Yeshua said it was. You are witnesses to the year of God's favor, which has been tweaked to say the acceptable year of the Lord, which means what? All right, one-year ministry. Uh, uh, Makarudas established that. All right. But he, the, the prophecy in Daniel was after a time, two times, and half a time, interpreted as three and a half years, will be the end of prophecy and what happens at the end of prophecy. The Messiah returns to end the oppression of the saints and rule over all the kingdoms of the earth. Who could that possibly be? Constantine, right? He is the return of the Messiah. He rules by divine right. You following me? Okay. Got but, a question. Uh, before you do any other questions, uh, Thank you. I want to, because we have online. Say again? I just was going to pray. And, uh, yeah. But yes, if you had, did you have something you want to say before I pray? Oh, okay. Thank you. So what we have over here is you can get all five of his books. He's normally $30 for the thicker ones, 20 for the thinner but he'll give you all five of them for $100 and you save 30 and you save shipping and you help him continue to go to show other people and share with them what he's going to do in the next six weeks. Okay. Thank you. So um, I'm going to pray. We're also going to ask those of you whose heart moves upon you to give a love offering. That will be, I'll place this over here on top of the Sadaka box. And you can put your love offering here. Father, we thank you so much for the awesome revelation and study that Dr. Jones has brought and, and shared with us. We thank you so much for what you have put his mind to the task and have put his hands to the plow of bringing truth. And we thank you that he has a heart for that, Father, and he's bringing it to all who has an ear to hear. So we give you praise and glory for the message today, and we pray that you pour out an abundant blessing upon him. In your son, Yahushua's name, we give thanks. Amen. Yes. Yeah, how can the people online, we had... Uh, yes, uh, please. Writingofgod.com is our website. Writingofgod.com. You can buy any of the books there. You can tr contribute there. And we do need helpers. We do need volunteers to help us translate the manuscripts of the Hebrew gospel that we have. We need researchers, transcribers, translators. So uh, if God calls you, pray about it. If God calls you, contact us. We'll train you. Awesome. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you.